and welcome back to the Cincy Reform Podcast. I'm Zach, this is Brandon, and we are coming to you this week with a, a bit of a conversation on um, something called post-millennialism. And if that uh, word freaks you out and it uh, causes you to uh, want to just bail on this episode, then don't. It's actually a very practical one and one that you'll understand here, I think, quite, quite quickly as to the significance of it. Um, one of the reasons that we decided to do this is because with all the kind of cultural questions and cultural upheaval going on right now, we thought it would be worth um, discussing this post-millennial uh, viewpoint that seems to be making a real uh, surge of interest of late. And to talk about it in hopefully charitable terms, although we both disagree with it, uh, post-millennialism is a bit of an intramural debate, you could say, depending on what variety you're talking about. I think there's some places where we might have some sympathy toward it, understand, and that um, it's not, not completely out in left field or anything like that. But we do have some concerns about that, so we want to discuss that with you today. And um, just to begin, in terms of a quick definition of post-millennialism, uh, post-millennialism is a, a view whereby Jesus returns post after a millennial reign, and the millennial reign is especially earthly. And so some sort of an earthly golden age. There is some diversity within the post-millennialist uh, camp in terms of when that earthly golden age begins. Uh, I've seen some who take it all the way back to 70 AD. Uh, and uh, I know others say it's still from this time, still completely future. Others want to link it with Constantine and so forth. And so there are different views as to where such an earthly golden age might begin. But the whole idea here is that it's a very earthly kind of millennium, picking up from Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 20, very earthly kind of millennium and a spread of the gospel that brings about cultural change, a Christianization of the world. And uh, that's the kind of thing that we want to discuss. Clearly has some real implications for how we view our interaction with culture and Christ's relationship with culture. And so we want to focus, though, today on the post-millennial viewpoint itself. And so before we go any further, Brandon, would you make sure that we don't mischaracterize post-millennialism? Maybe if you would like to introduce us to some of the things that they've said about their own view. Sure, yeah. Um, so I have a few quotes that I thought might be helpful to kind of hear from their own perspective, their own mouths. You know, this is what we believe, and this is what post-millennialism is. And so A.H. Strong says... We may best interpret Revelation 20, 4 through 10 as teaching in highly figurative language, not a preliminary resurrection of the body in the case of departed saints, but a period of the latter days of the church militant when, under special influence of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the martyrs shall appear again. True religion is greatly quickened and revived, and the members of Christ's church become so conscious of their strength in Christ that they shall, to an extent unknown before, triumph over the powers of evil, both within and without. In short, we hold that Revelation 20, 4-10, through 10, does not describe the events commonly called the Second Advent and Resurrection, but rather describes great spiritual change in the later history of the Church. 
so strong they're talking about uh, there's going to be this future triumph of the powers that the church has never known before. There's this kind of this um, revived uh, pouring out of the Spirit in, in mass, and uh, there's going to be, uh, again, a great, a great triumph. Kenneth Gentry, another uh, post-millennial writer, he says, Post-millennialism holds that the Lord Jesus Christ establishes kingdom on earth through the preaching and redemptive work of the first century, and that he equips his church with the gospel, empowers her by the Spirit, and charges her with the great commission to disciple all nations. Postmillennialism expects that eventually the vast majority of men living will be saved. Increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of men and nations. After an extensive era of such conditions, the Lord will return visibly, bodily, and gloriously to end history with the general resurrection and the final judgment after which the eternal order follows. So there's going to be, again, a Christianization uh, of, of basically the whole world, and then Christ will come after that. And then one other quote, this is from Doug Wilson, he's, he's more of a popular writer. Nowadays we see him on blogs and uh, YouTube videos and, 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 and all around, but Doug Wilson said, Postmillennialists have a very optimistic view of the future of this world, believing that the Great Commission is going to be successfully fulfilled and that the nations will overwhelmingly turn to Christ. And he cites a few biblical passages. Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you. I will dishonor uh, those who dishonor you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Revelation 22, 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And finally, he quotes Psalm 72, 8, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So those are some of the post-millennialist writers in their own words, kind of reflecting on what their hope is, on what their view is. Uh, so maybe, Zach, we can now turn to ask some critical questions, maybe, about this view. Where should we maybe begin? Yeah, I think that's one of the key ways where we can begin to test as to whether the post-millennial perspective is really the most helpful is to think about it with respect to certain metaphors. And I think one of the key metaphors that we can see within the New Testament writings is the description that the church is a wilderness people. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 4, which I think very clearly um, describes the church's existence now. And it says this in chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, talking about rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. 
So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hebrews chapter 4 is bringing exhortations to the church and describing the church as being in a situation outside the land of Canaan. And as being on the verge of Canaan, yes, but not yet being inhabitors of it, not yet being rooted in that holy land, but rather as those who are journeying, who are eating manna from heaven, who are drinking water from a rock, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and that we are in that sort of a position as a holy nation. We're on a journey through a wilderness. That means we're not yet conquerors. That means we're looking forward to something. And what we're looking forward to within Hebrews 4 is not some earthly rest, some temporal rest of just like a thousand years or some long earthly time. But the description here is that our hope is in everlasting eschatological rest. The new heavens and the new earth. Capital R, rest. Capital S, shalom. That is the thing that we're waiting for. And that comes um, with the conquest that comes through Jesus Christ in his second coming. So I think the, the wilderness is really that first motif that's, a, that's especially helpful for us. As we think about how the post-millennial view does not really um, fit so well with that key biblical motif. Brandon, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I mean, not only does the, does the writer of Hebrews say that we are a wilderness people, um, as as we're um, uh, those in the old in the old covenants as well, we're still kind of this wilderness people, and that has a whole host of implications. But also, kind of pairing with that, well, we are pilgrim people. We are sojourners, strangers, exiles. There's a whole host of, of words and metaphors that the Bible uses to kind of describe who we are and our posture. And, you know, we are pilgrims. We are, um, you know, the Bible talks about how our citizenship is in heaven, not on this earth. How we are not of the world. Uh, how we are passing through this world. And so we have this pilgrim metaphor, this world that will be uh, one day you know, purified and destroyed with fire, and we are longing for that new creation, and you know, it's like a hiker on the Appalachian Trail or something, right? Your, your, your destination is in your mind. You're going to, to, to that end goal. You know, if you, start in, if you start down south, your goal is Maine, and you want to get up there. And uh, you know, for us, pilgrim people, we, our goal is new heavens, new earth, new creation. And that's where our pilgrimage is. And we are a pilgrim people on the earth, not yet home. Uh, the writer of Hebrews commends this kind of pilgrim mentality, the pilgrim piety that we saw in the patriarchs. Uh, and in Hebrews um, uh, chapter 11, he says, These all died in faith, talking about the patriarchs and those who came before us. Um, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them for, from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
for he has prepared for them a city. Also in Hebrews thirteen fourteen, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so what you know, what is the, the hope of the pilgrim? It's the city that is to come. He doesn't say, well, the hope is a future millennial golden realm or golden era that's not yet new creation, but it's like an in-between or something. Like, that's just not really in view. I mean, in view in the pilgrim life is we are walking through the wilderness and all of the suffering and all of the turmoil and the tribulations that befall the wilderness uh, as pilgrims, and our hope is new creation. You know, as we think about, you know, what does the pilgrim motif do to us as Christians? Well, it teaches us, I think, very basically that we're not yet home. Uh, again, our citizenship is in heaven, we're passing through, and so it would be inappropriate then to maybe uh, say that this is our home, and this is kind of, we always make this like a, even a semi-ultimate kind of thing here on earth, but no, we're, we're not yet home. We're longing for consummation. We're longing for uh, n- new creation. Uh, and But also, I, I do want to mention that the pilgrim motif doesn't necessarily mean like we don't care, like we're just passing through and we don't give a riff about what's happening in the world. No, we are to be engaged. We are even to be hopeful. I mean, even as pilgrims, even as we realize that we're in this wilderness era as as, as pilgrims, um, we can still be, be very hopeful because God gives blessings. And we can, we've seen in church history eras and seasons in which God has blessed the church and the church was uh, has dwelt in peace and there was a... Uh, spreading of the gospel, and we, we can be very hopeful toward these things. We can pray about these things. I would love to see the entire uh, cosmos, if it were, you know, the entire world just become Christian. I mean, I, I would love if if a revival started and everybody really repented and really came to faith in Christ in a uh, in a in a in a true way. I would love that. I pray for that. Uh, and I'm hopeful, and we're engaged, we're, we're, we're part of the Great Commission, we're engaged in our societies, we're voting, we're helping the poor, we're doing various things. So, engage in hopeful pilgrims, but pilgrims nonetheless. Um, and we don't want to posit something that somehow un, undoes our pilgrim identity. And, and I think that's where maybe some in the post-millennial camp is almost you know, uh, wanting to deposit something that is going to somehow negate our pilgrim identity or at least minimize it, I think. Anything else? I think that's helpful. I mean, thus far, maybe we can summarize by saying that we talked about our realm, as a, the biblical motif of the realm as being wilderness, death versus life. Uh, it's not paradise yet. Canaan was paradise, but we're, we're wilderness. And that's what surrounds us, thorns and thistles. Genesis 3. We've talked about our own identity, which is pilgrim people. And that's a very key uh, motif for exile, as Brandon mentioned. And as Jeremiah 29, uh, God told the people there to pray for the city and to bless the city in which they lived. And for its, its welfare, you'll find your welfare. And so we absolutely positively affirm that and believe that we should love our neighbor. And that takes on many different hats terms of how we might love our neighbor and to make a better world. Yet we still are in a wilderness. Yet we still are pilgrims. And the third, I think, theme that kind of helps round this out, if we've talked about the realm, we've talked about our own identity, we then think about our, our relationship with the surrounding world. 
And one of the key themes here is to think about the church as being militant, the church militant, not triumphant in this world. Our triumph comes with the return of Jesus Christ. But within this world, we are called church militant because on one hand, we're fighting our own sin. And that's something that is going to persist until Christ returns and glorifies us. And at times it can be questionable to me as what kind of a view of sin does the post-millennialist have in terms of sin that indwells even the Christian in this age prior to Christ's second coming. We are, we are militant, fighting our own sin. We are militant as we think about our relationship with the surrounding world. The world is over against the church. Genesis 3 talks about how there'll be two seeds, two spiritual cities that emerge from the fall. We have the seed of the woman, the church that's joined to the great seed, Jesus Christ. Then you have the seed of the serpent. And these two are at war with one another, odds with one another, and they do battle. And this spiritual battle does not come to an end until Christ returns. In fact, Revelation chapter 7 can describe this world as being a place of called great tribulation. And that it is out of this great tribulation that we come, we emerge victorious when we die. And so it looks to the world as we are buried in the grave. It looks to the world like we've died and we've been defeated by Satan, sin, the world, and death. But the spiritual reality that's seen in heaven by the Apostle John in Revelation 7, is that the church actually emerges victorious by way of death. And so on earth we are militants, in heaven we are triumphants, and that triumph becomes earthly with the second coming of Jesus Christ. But we need to understand, nevertheless, that we are uh, a church militant. And maybe, Brandon, you can kind of um, fill this out a little bit by discussing the way of the cross and how this militancy also becomes um, embodied as we are conformed to Christ, as we carry his cross, as Calvin once said, that in our baptism, the cross of Christ is placed upon our backs. And it's hard to kind of, again, fit this kind of way of thinking with a post-millennial view that says, hey, everything's going to be hunky-dory one day. Don't worry about that. You're going to be um, in a, a Christianized time, a Christianized uh, epoch, and so everything's going to be completely different qualitatively. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so not only are you know, we in the wilderness, pilgrims, church militant, but also, you know, we follow a crucified Christ, crucified and ascended, raised and ascended Christ. Um, and we follow that, his, that, that kind of cruciform pattern, and the cruciform pattern of the Christian life is something commended to us throughout the New Testament. So, for example, in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. John 10.15, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 2 Timothy 3.12, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29 says that uh, it has been appointed for you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. So appointed not only to believe, but appointed to also suffer. Uh, Christians live this cruciform life. We have, again, like, like you mentioned, crosses 
on our backs. Uh, Carl Truman had a great uh, quote where he was talking about um, how the, the church is militant, how the church has this cruciform life, and, and Truman said, if suffering and weakness are the ways God works in Christ, it is to be expected that these are the ways he will work in those who seek to follow Christ. True Christian expectations center on the cross and involve an acceptance if not a willing embrace of the suffering, weakness, and marginalization which inevitably come to those who follow in the footsteps of the Master. Um, so, Zach, we live a cruciform life. Uh, what might be maybe one other motif that would help us? Yeah, the way that Scripture speaks about the Second Coming is in terms of a great cataclysmic event, the, the height of wickedness, the height of rebellion. This doesn't mean that the church consists of three or four people, but it does say that there's going to be a great cataclysmic event that occurs as the nations gather in rebellion against the Lord. And then when all things look like the hope is lost for the church, he shows up as the rider on the white uh, horse. Um, we see this in one place is Re Revelation chapter 20. As the millennial age comes to an end there, and again, as we think about the millennium, uh, Brandon and I, we think about it in terms of a heavenly reality that's kind of behind the curtain is there's a real millennial reign of Christ ever since his enthronement um, back in the first century, ever since the outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, there is a true triumph of Christians, but it's a triumph through weakness, through suffering. That millennial reign that's a heavenly millennium comes to an end with the return of Christ as he comes down, the Satan being released from the pits, who makes war against the church, who makes war against uh, Jesus Christ, and who is then struck down at, in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 20. It describes him being released for a little while to gather those nations for that international battle against the church. The uh, great commentator on the book of Revelation in our generation, uh, G.K. Beale, uh, writes this about Revelation 20 and that release of Satan. Persecution by deceived multitudes will break out against the worldwide church, such that it would vanish were it not for God's intervention on its behalf. Until that point in time, you see attacks against the church, you see the church opposed, you see that we are called to a life of suffering. As a side note, this does not mean that we're doormats. This does not mean that we just passively relinquish everything. We want to love our neighbor, and our neighbor includes fellow Christians. So we do want to be engaged with the surrounding world. Yet Christ's warning in the apostolic word still reigns true not just for a past generation of Christians, but for all those who come until the second coming of Christ, that we need to be prepared for the sake of a, a opposition, a, a persecution, and even for a great cataclysmic event right before Christ's second coming of the nations being gathered in holy war against the worldwide church. Brandon, do you want to finish us up by kind of summarizing where we've come from? Yeah. So, you know, one of the, the big hopes for the post-millennialists is that there's going to be 
some sort of new Christendom, you know, this kind of new Christianization um, of the entire world, and that this will, will come about by a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and everything will just become Christian, and the world will become Christian. Um, it doesn't mean every single person. There could still be a few people who are kind of, you know, just following along, but not really there. But for the most part, I mean, there's going to be a Christianizing of the world. And so if you think about, I mean, think about uh, one's hope or, or even the, the mission of the church, if you are in the post-millennial camp, it is, well, you know, success looks like Christendom, right? But Interestingly, you know, as we were surveying the various motifs in, 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 in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, the church is victorious through persecution, through martyrdom, through death, through suffering, uh, through weakness, through marginalization. And the, the way of success for, for us would be uh, faithfulness to Christ, even as we're being persecuted and as we're suffering and as we're dying and uh, being faithful, uh, you know, um, having faith and, and, and clinging to Christ and, and these things. So it, it postures you a little bit differently in terms of your, your church outlook or your, your own piety. And there's so many things that we could have, you know, unpacked with the whole post-millennial conversation that we just can't really get into uh, because we just be here all day. But there's, you know, so many things unpacked. You know, we could have, for example, we could have unpacked some more about this this idea of fulfilling the Great Commission. You know, what does it mean to fulfill the Great Commission? Well, the post-millennialists will say, well, fulfilling of the Great Commission means that in a certain generation, perhaps in the future, there's going to be a uh, mass outpouring of the Spirit, and like there will become a generation where a majority of them are elect. Um, all around the world, and that's going to be the fulfillment of the great tribulation, or the great uh, commission, rather. And we would say, well, the great, uh, the great commission is fulfilled when the the, the the full number of the elect come to faith, and which can be very gradually throughout the history of the church. Uh, so there's some differences there that we could have explored. We could have also explored about uh, again, what are the implications? as there's a Christianizing of the world in terms of government and church-state relations and what kind of laws are going to be imposed. Are we going to bring back the Old Testament laws and impose them on on people? Is there going to be a state church to which everybody has to pay taxes and, and go into? And um, and again, so there's so many other other things we could have unpacked, but I think that these topics that we've We've hit in terms of uh, wilderness, pilgrim, militant, um, uh, the, the, the end times being... The way the cross as well. Yeah, the way the cross, yeah. end times being um, more intense. I mean, those I think have been some, some helpful themes to help us think about, about the post-millennial view and maybe ask some hard questions and begin that conversation uh, with uh, because I, I do think that in some conversation with with post millennialism, uh, those themes that we we highlighted are undermined, neglected, or just really not talked about. You just don't hear too much about the suffering church and the way of the cross and the pilgrim motif, and you know everything's about this building of a new Christendom. And so I think that we need to maybe kind of get back and think about the way in which the Bible is speaking about who we are and who the church is. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, just was going to close here with our Belgic Confession from Article 37. 
this uh, uh, is one of the articles of faith that our church uh, holds to and uh, confesses. Um, a couple bits here that I'm just going to point out just as we kind of wrap this up is that uh, the first part of the um, Article 37, it discusses the world as um, being burned with fire in order that Christ cleanses it. So this clearly builds off 2 Peter 3, where like the time of Noah, water overwhelmed the world. So too at the time of Christ's second coming, fire will overwhelm the world. And so there, this, is, this is clearly a use of fire that is, uh, brings destruction to the old world. It's not just something that, uh, you know, gives it a nice little facelift, but uh, something that very cataclysmic occurs. As it goes on, it begins to talk about how the Christian uh, views the uh, second coming and describes it as being very pleasant and a great comfort to the righteous and elect, since their total redemption will then be accomplished. In other words, there's this forward look by all of the elect that sees the second coming, this cataclysmic event, as very comforting. They, they will then receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. Their innocence will be openly recognized by all, and they will see the terrible vengeance that God will bring on the evil ones who tyrannized, oppressed, and tormented them in this world. Now, this is not talking about all the people up until some earthly millennium, all the elect until that point. It's about all of the elect, that that is the description of them, that they were the one, they were all tyrannized, oppressed, and tormented. And then the evil ones would be cast into everlasting uh, fire, it goes on. So, again, as we think about that moment, when all the tears will be wiped away from our eyes, we're not looking forward to some intermediate step, some intermediate state of like an earthly golden age where things will become saved on earth, but rather Christ returns to save his people, not to an already saved people. And so we look forward to that day. Uh, we trust that you also are looking forward to that as well. If you have questions about this, uh, please get in touch, let us know. And we'll probably be hitting some more episodes on this in the future. As you hit some of the things that maybe Brandon mentioned earlier, we could also think about the two-age structure that we read in the Apostle Paul and Christ himself as things that help us to think and navigate this question of how we uh, view Christ and culture and what the Christian's ex expectation in this world uh, might be. So until next time, this is the Sensory Reform Podcast sponsored by Westside Reform Church. That's Brandon. I'm Zach. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.